0: Welcome to the In Common podcast. This is Hatley Post. This clip comes from full episode 8 with Helen Roswadowski. Helen is a professor of history and founder of the Maritime Studies program at the University of Connecticut and has written multiple books on the history of the ocean. In this clip, Helen discusses the idea of the ocean as a mirror, reflecting our personal biases and ideas back to us. She continues by discussing the importance of the social sciences in influencing how scientists approach different questions and problems and the interdisciplinary nature of ocean research. This is the In Common Podcast.
1: You gave this nice example. You were presenting some of your work from one of your, your recent book chapters in the book that you mentioned about this idea of, of the ocean as the frontier, mm. uh, the metaphor of the ocean as the frontier and how this is uh, similar to it was perceived in the American West um, on land. Um, how is that? I think you gave some examples probably of how that metaphor has shaped the use of the oceans, but how powerful is that metaphor of ocean as the frontier? And is it still like this today?
2: Right. So I think, first of all, metaphors are an important way that people, at least uh, Westerners, have understood and and kind of defined the ocean over time in the 19th century there are examples of people talking about the ocean as a highway uh, or perhaps as a wilderness so so metaphors are are really important for for organizing uh the way we think especially about places like oceans which are so hard to know directly uh, because they're so big and they're so difficult they're opaque uh, for most of us uh, that sort of thing But um, the ocean frontier metaphor was one that um, kind of got a little bit of traction at the beginning of the 20th century, especially if you think about or if you look into people's concerns about declining whale populations in the early uh, decades of the 20th century. Whales were very often referred to as being like the bison of the Western Plains. So there were some, some antecedents to... Uh, the, the metaphor of the Western US West, the frontier, as applied to the ocean, but the time that it really got um, a lot of attention was after World War II. In the 1950s and 60s, you suddenly have uh, many, many people, especially scientists, but also popular writers about the ocean, entrepreneurs, industrialists, uh, the media, starting to refer to the ocean as a frontier. And by this, they meant a number of things. Uh, one was the anticipated shift uh, from uh, uh, what, what people described as a hunting mode to a farming mode. They pointed out, you know, we still do mostly hunt rather than farm in the ocean, but um, most of our fisheries are wild caught, but um, they thought that was terribly old fashioned and that we ought to be moving along and, and you know, organizing the ocean in, in ways that were like uh, how the Earth was organized to make better use of the ocean's resources. They also very much anticipated uh, the inauguration of industries in the ocean. So there, I showed a picture in the um, in the talk that's also uh, reproduced in my book of an entire oil industry that would operate underseas. So the 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 drilling would be undersea, the refining would be undersea, and the transportation would be by submarine. Um, so so the idea was that these undersea industries would be um, supported by people who lived and worked undersea. So there was an anticipation, and this again kind of picks up the frontier motif, that the ocean would be uh, new living space, that eventually we would simply live underwater. Right.
1: Yeah, you showed some, some pretty interesting kind of space-looking, at least, oriented images in, in your presentation. What was the role of, of those types of kind of characters and, and images in shaping the, in the public discourse?
2: Well, one of the things that was happening, of course, was the, the simultaneous rise of interest in space exploration. Uh, the, the, I have found earlier examples of the ocean being described as frontier than space, but regardless of quibbling about whether one was slightly before the other, they clearly those cultural constructions happened at the same time. And if you go back, one of the things I did when I was doing research was I, I looked through Life magazine between 1949, which was the first year that scuba technology was commercially available in North America. And uh, I kind of went through the 60s, so right to the end of the 60s. And uh, I, I was asking a number of questions, but one of the questions I was asking was, what was the attention to space versus the underwater, uh, the, the ocean frontier? And uh, in Life magazine in particular, there was quite a lot of interest in scuba and the ocean and underwater. Uh, and so, so you see those imaginaries kind of developing uh, in relation to one another. Now, from today's perspective, most people don't really remember all that kind of ocean imagery that I showed you, uh, you know, the kind of undersea hotels and, and things like that, that, that were part of popular culture in the 1960s. And we do remember the space pictures images because space is sort of still important, but that's one of the, uh, the things that, that historians can offer is to kind of help us go back in time and, and see the world the way people at the time would have seen it and, and understand how powerful uh, the, the expectations surrounding the ocean were at that time.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if you kind of, as a historian, you see this kind of amnesia where we forget that we kind of went through this process already. And you, I imagine you kind of have see these reoccurring cycles of different themes and different discourses about the ocean. Um, do you think we're largely repeating some of those today that we've already went through in the 50s and the 60s? or what are some of the main kind of discourses about the ocean at the moment and how it's being used?
2: Well, one thing I would say is that uh, today you hear lots of discussion about uh, undersea mining and various kinds of minerals and, and other kinds of non-living resources that are going to be um, uh, accessible by modern technology at any moment. And, and I like to Sort of remind people that that was exactly the the story that was being told in, in the mid 1960s, uh, and that didn't come to pass. So there, you know, there are a couple of lessons. One is um, uh, maybe the ocean is more difficult than we thought. And as enthusiastic and positive, or as ambitious as we are about the technology. Uh, to To extract things from the ocean, um, it, you know, it may give us more run for our money than we think. So, so maybe we should temper our our optimism a little. But um, I think one of the other things it does is remind us that so much of what we see when we look in the ocean is more a reflection of what we bring to it in terms of our ambitions, our desires. In other words, the ocean is more mirror than. Uh, maybe we we think and that's one of the things that the humanities can kind of remind us of is you know if we see ourselves coming up with these very specific um, goals for the ocean we should maybe stop and you know kind of investigate where those goals came from how they're connected to uh, things that were articulated in the past about how we might have wanted to use the ocean Mm -hmm. so so that's that's something that I think um, uh, I'm, I'm usually pretty skeptical when I see something in, in the news about, you know, oh, well, we're testing out these uh, undersea giant machines that are going to mine manganese nodules. And I think, well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But there are, I mean, the problem is we haven't really solved uh, all of the uh, geopolitical and, you know, kind of economic uh, and, and equity, uh, global equity issues that are embedded in you know what seems like a simple thing like let's go out and, and pick things up from the bottom of the sea floor that are valuable
1: right right michael i'll uh, pass it over to you if you have any questions yeah great this
3: has been r- really interesting multiple friends. Uh, one initial question is um, how do you think it would um change of these dynamics if say the philosophy of science and the history of science were required aspects of PhD programs in engineering, ecology, and public policy. Would you see that as something beneficial?
2: I do think that would help. And I think that um, anytime you ask scientists and engineers to step back and think about how they're creating knowledge about the natural world, uh, they will begin to see uh, influences that they wouldn't have otherwise addressed in terms of uh, what are the, the kind of social and environmental problems we're trying to solve, uh, sometimes very blatantly where the money comes from. That's something that historians of science are good at tracing uh, and, and things like that definitely influence the kind of questions that are asked and sometimes inter- influence the kind of knowledge that's produced. And you know, I think there are lots of examples within the history of science that, uh, that, that show those kind of influences. And so you know, while we, we earnestly want to think that science and engineering produces um, objective knowledge. Uh, it is very much embedded. They're human activities. Uh, and and so I think it's always a good idea uh, to teach scientists and engineers to understand what they're doing as a human endeavor and not something that is somehow uh, special and, and you know, apart from other kinds of human endeavors.
3: Yeah, I mean, it just that resonates really strong with me. I, I was just also thinking about your point about the the use of metaphors. Hmm. I feel like when a lot of us are kind of internalizing our, our professional norms and becoming part of a group we also internalize these different metaphors whether it's the balance of nature and ecology or whether it's society as a set of supply and demand curves uh, and introductory economics and i don't think it's just i almost it feels like this funny quirk of the human brain that we kind of act as if these things came down from on high or out of mm-hmm. nowhere
2: yeah Yeah, and and take
3: that step back.
2: Yeah, the ocean frontier story is a funny one because, in some ways, it's attenuated a little bit. um, With, uh, as I argue in my book, especially the failure of the Northwest Atlantic cod stocks to recover that that stock that had been fished for 500 years, the failure of that stock to recover when it when it was uh, let alone and not fished for for a decade or more. Was shocking to people. Everyone expected that the stocks would recover, and that was kind of the first glimmering uh, of an idea that maybe people had changed an ecosystem, not just fished a stock of fish. And and so, you know, on the one hand, you know, you start to you're tempted to think, well, that ocean frontier metaphor has been kind of pushed aside. But in fact, last week at this ICES symposium that I attended. I heard a couple of papers, including by uh, scientists advocating uh, developing the kind of technology that would be needed to, to fish for mesopelagic fish, fish that are kind of in the middle, that float around in the middle. They're widely dispersed, but they make a, a big um, amount of biomass if you could catch them, um, but never asking the question, should we catch them? Or is that simply doing what we've been doing you know, for 100 years? Or 150 years of commercial fishing, which is fishing out one stock and moving on to the next. So, in some ways, I feel like the frontier metaphor was still guiding some of the talks I heard at that conference, even though I, you know, I really don't think that the 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 people giving those talks would have thought of it in in that way.
3: Mm. Yeah, the, I mean, this idea of the ocean of the mirror, I'm still kind of getting getting over that I mean it's pretty it's a pretty powerful statement I mean, when I'm teaching my courses on environmental governance I'm always trying to impress upon my students the fact that the idea that the lessons we're learning are helpful socially but also in our own lives and for me it's always seemed you know it's just like endless task to like be aware of what you bring to a situation in like multiple contexts in your life it's like how much am I actually imposing or projecting out to this versus letting a system or a person talk to me mm-hmm.
2: So I have a favorite example from the mid 19th century that I think kind of helps unpack the mirror analogy. When uh, scientists started studying the Atlantic ocean floor with the idea of putting submarine telegraph cables down there, they were uh, using sounding technology which was very much in development and the results of these devices acting out of sight under the waves was very much up for interpretation. So that was one thing that was happening. And uh, even when they ended up kind of settling on one particular technology, uh, which presumably is at least a little more consistent, you know, if you use it a bunch of times, um, they ended up with this picture of the ocean floor that was articulated by Matthew Fontaine Maury, one of the uh, scientists, and he uh, was a US naval officer most involved in, in trying to find ways to create representations of uh, winds and currents, of um, other kinds of uh, data about the ocean that, that would make it usable to to um, mariners. So for example, he created this whale chart that showed where whales were caught, and it was something that helped uh, whalemen in the Pacific know kind of where to go and what season to look for whales. So he was really good at this kind of Uh, organizing data visually in a way that uh, Alexander von Humboldt had done. Indeed, he was uh, an admirer of Humboldt and called the book that he wrote, uh, the physical geography of the sea in homage to Humboldt's physical geography. That was the field that he was kind of articulating. But Maury, when he was trying, the first one to really try to describe the deep sea floor, he described it as a place where there were no currents, The bottom was very soft, full of these soft sediments that were things that were shells of dead animals, so there was simply nothing to endanger a telegraph cable. And indeed, at exactly the point where they hoped to put the telegraph cable, he and his hydrographers found uh, a kind of moderately deep uh, stretch of ocean that was the same depth all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Now today, we'd be a little skeptical because We know there's the mid-ocean ridge, which they missed, but in this, you know, and you can interpret this as they had some data, maybe by today's standards, they didn't have enough data. But the way I like to think about it, they actually laid the cable successfully. I mean, as far as they were concerned, they found a good place to put the cable and they put it there and it worked, you know, and only later did they discover there is life at the bottom of the sea, they missed the mid-ocean ridge. You know, but at some level, there's a question of, I mean, that's sort of where the mirror comes in, right? I mean, they they were content with the version of the ocean that they were uh, uh, seeing, so to speak, or finding, because they were able to do what they wanted to do. And, you know, at other times, when people asked different questions, they went back, uh, for example, some of the um, early voyages before the HMS Challenger began to see temperature differences that made them suspect there were ridges um, in, in the North Atlantic. And so then they went and looked and they found ridges. So, so that's what, that sort of goes back to what um, we were talking about a minute ago about one reason why scientists should probably uh, study the history of science. Because you know, examples like that might help you suspect that that there must there you know even though you think you've thought of everything there might be limitations to the questions you're asking because of what you you know what your ambitions are what you hope to do or what you hope to learn
0: thanks for tuning in the in common podcast is a partner project of the international association for the study of the commons and the international journal of the commons to explore more episodes of the podcast as well as our blog visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod. Thanks again.